So um, there are a number of things about this uh, holiday of Resurrection Sunday, uh, you know, coming up that, um, uh, you know, people always come and ask me uh, about, you know, what about uh, Palm Sunday? What about, you know, Good Friday? What about these things? Um, I'm not, it, uh, you know, it's going to sound like I'm dogmatic that I insist upon, you know, so I don't, you know, if somebody, you know, has a big celebration of Palm Sunday or, you know, has services on Good Friday, I don't mind that at all. It doesn't offend me. I'm not, you know, I would encourage you if you want to go, go to those types of services. Well, we're going to be in Genesis 46 this morning. And people are like, well, you know, why aren't you like doing this other thing? Well, Jesus confronted the religious leaders in his day and said, you honor your traditions above the word of God. And you nullify the word of God in the process. Many such things you do. Um, I don't mean to sound offensive. Most people are aware Jesus was not crucified on Friday. And, uh, Good Friday. Okay, let you know somebody else have a service. Let's celebrate that. He was in the grave three days and three nights. For the Jew, the day begins at sundown. They they hurried to get him off from the cross and into the grave. Okay? The high holy day of the Sabbath that they were honoring was not Sabbath Saturday. Okay? He, was, he was being put in the grave in preparation for their Jewish holiday, not the fact that it was Saturday. So Jesus, as best we can tell, was crucified on Wednesday taken off the cross and put into the grave before sundown Wednesday because he spent Thursday, one day, Friday, two days, Saturday, three days and three nights in the grave. And when they came to the tomb on the first day of the week, Sunday, he was already gone. Jesus was out of the tomb. See, when we start moving things around from what the, the Bible describes, then people are left with like, you Christians don't even know what you're talking about. Or if we then try to change the definition of days and move and, and squash things to fit what we've created as a tradition, then you can start moving and changing and squashing things all over the scripture. Leave it as it stands. Leave it as it is described. You know, Good Friday? Awesome. Let's, you know, get together on Friday and Worship Jesus Christ's crucifixion on our behalf. There are very specific things in the scripture, which brings me to the next thing I want to talk about. In regard to Palm Sunday. Repeatedly, Jesus is saying to his followers and to the throngs of people, I'm paraphrasing, but you're not going to make me the Messiah right now. It's not my day. It's not my day. This is not the day. This is not the day. It's not my day. He says that over and over and over again. This is not the day. It's not my day. The reason he says that is there's a very specific day in history where he will allow the people to declare him as the Messiah. So I want to talk about the specifics at breakneck speed. 
because I need to get into Genesis 46. So, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. The prophet said, having asked the Lord, when are we going to be released from our captivity here in Babylon? Because he had read the writings of Jeremiah and recognized they were going to be in captivity for 70 years. And he's going, wait a minute, we've been here for almost 70 years. Are we about to get out? So he inquires of the Lord, praying and fasting for 21 days. An angel arrives and gives him the message. Not just when are they going to be released, but the entire future of Israel. And as you read through that prophecy, you come to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, where the angel said to him, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The streets shall be built again, the walls even in troublesome times. Any of us that have studied the scripture, Nehemiah was given the order by King Arctic Xerxes, March 14th, 445 BC, to restore and rebuild the temple. So you know from the order to restore and rebuild the temple, you have this time period. Now this Hebrew word weeks here is seven. That's just literally what it means. It carries the idea of seven year periods of time. And that's later defined in the scripture. Daniel prophesied that the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem 173,880 days after the order to rebuild was issued. So again, it's shown this way. 69 weeks equals 483 years, 69 times 7. 483 years times or 360 days, because that was the Jewish year of the time. They ran according to the lunar calendar, not the Roman calendar. That hasn't been created at that point. So if you take that, you come up with 173,880 days. As I said, the actual date we know from both the scripture and from history, was March 14th, 445 B.C., when King Artaxerxes said, go and rebuild Jerusalem. History and church documents show that Jesus entered Jerusalem on April 6th, 32 A.D. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, other facts prove this to be the date. Daniel was correct in that 173,880 days would have to pass from March 14th, 445 B.C. to April 632 A.D. Uh, but now you've got to do some math. So, from March 14th, 445 B.C. to April 632 A.D. would seem to be 477 years and 24 days. However, in this process, you have to deduct one year as there's only one year between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. So this means it would be 476 years and 24 days. If you take 476 times 365-hour Julianne calendar, you come up with 173,740 days. If you add the 24 days, you have 473,764 are you confused yet? Follow. Our Julian calendar has numerous peculiarities to it, such as leap year. 
right? So we find there our 119 leap years in that same period of time. So 476 divided by 4, uh, 419, thus you add 119 to 173,746, you get 173,883 days. Right? It's supposed to be 173,880 days. So you're three days long at that point. Most people are like, close enough, man. I mean, come on, you know? No, not for God. Not for his perfect standard. Okay? If you take that and you understand what's going on with this, uh, the consideration in this is our year is actually one one hundred twenty eighth of a day too long okay this is how specific we get uh, we say the year is what 365 and a quarter days and so then every fourth year we add that leap year in there that that's actually one one hundred twenty eighth of a day too long so you guessed it every 128 years you have to skip a leap year. And if you're already ahead of this process, in that same period of time, there are three leap years where you would skip a leap year. So subtract three days, 173,880 days. From March 14th, 445 BC to April 6th, 32 AD. To the day. Jesus says, not my day, not our day, not the day over and over through his ministry. That, right? Remember, they were going to force him to be their Messiah. And he was like, not now. Disappears, walks through their midst, stops them from doing it. Why? Because on April 6, 32 AD, he is going to walk into Jerusalem, ride on the colt of the donkey. The people are going to take their outer cloaks off, lay them down in the road, cut down palm branches, hence the term Palm Sunday, lay them in the street and declare him Messiah, the son of David come in all of his glory. There's a very exacting standard to God's word. And we want you to know all of it, right? As I said, it's going to sound like I'm being dogmatic. What I don't want to do is create in somebody's mind a thought process that takes them to traditions of men that end up causing them to question God's word. So we avoid that. We do that by doing what Paul said. He said in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We teach verse by verse. Where we left off last, that's where we pick up next. So that we're continuously going through the word, and we're getting the whole counsel of God's word. I, again, I'm not saying like we're better than the other churches because they don't do that. It's nothing like that. This is what God has called us to do. And, you know, other churches, God has called them to teach topically. And man, it ministers to people, right? I've been in many churches visiting, show up, and it's the exact sermon I need to hear today. The Holy Spirit is in control. We've heard very clearly from the Holy Spirit as a movement, Calvary Chapel, that what the Lord has called us to is the verse-by-verse -verse teaching. 
of God's Word. I think it's very significant and very important. So, with all of that, Genesis 46 is where we are. Beginning at verse 1. So, we're right in the midst of this story of Joseph. He's Jacob's son. He has 11 brothers. At least 10 of them hated him and were engaged in a plot to kill him. One of their brothers, trying to avoid murdering Joseph, makes the suggestion that they throw him in a pit and just sort of let nature take its course. He'll starve to death. Then we didn't actually murder him. He died, but we didn't murder And while he's away, his other brothers sell him off to traders who bring him to Egypt. He's sold to Potiphar, an official in the government there, and eventually becomes the steward over all of Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife is... Um, I was going to... I'll curb my language. She uh, lusted after him. And she hit on him daily, insisting that they should sleep together. And eventually she traps him and tries to actually force him. He, uh, She's grabbing his cloak. He just comes out of it uh, as he's pulling away and flees. She cries rape. Uh, he's arrested and thrown into prison. There in prison, he interprets a couple of the inmates' dreams. One of them goes back to serving the Pharaoh when he's done now. Pharaoh has a dream more than two years later and needs it to be interpreted. The former inmate remembers there's this guy in prison that can interpret dreams. They bring Joseph in. He interprets the dream by God's power for Pharaoh. And the interpretation is that there's seven years of abundance coming and then seven years of famine. And they make this plan to tax the people 20% of their grain, and uh, they put Daniel in charge of that. His brothers come down because they're starving during the famine, purchase food. Joseph recognizes them, conceals his identity from them, toys with them for a little while, keeping one of their brothers in prison, sending them home. They come back as he commanded. He reveals himself to them. Their father has thought that he is dead this whole time. And they, having been reunited as brothers and experiencing Joseph's grace and forgiveness, go home to tell dad, Joseph's alive and you need to come back down to Egypt. That's what he commands. So when you come to Genesis 46, verse 1, it says, So Israel, which is the name that God has given to Jacob, because his birth name means to come from behind and cause people to stumble. Grab their heel, literally, and cause them to stumble. Heel catcher, most literally, is what his name means. You know, He was thought of as a scoundrel. And God said, well, that's no good. Now that you're submitted to me, we're going to change your name. You're going to be known as Israel, which means governed by God. So to go from being scoundrel who grabs people's heel and causes them to stumble, which is a mouthful and an embarrassing introduction. You know, Have you met the scoundrel who causes people to trip by grabbing their heel? And right away, people are like, you know, 
stay in front of me, pal. You know, I just. And now he's Israel, governed by God. We're going to see a couple times where that reference goes back and forth, even in these passages. So Israel took his journey with all that he had. And he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifice to the God of his father, Isaac. Abraham had Isaac, who had Jacob, who became known as Israel. Back in Genesis 21 at verse 33, it says, Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Beersheba means well of an oath. He had taken an oath regarding with the men who had tried to fight over the ownership of the well there, and he'd taken oaths to God there. So it becomes a very significant place to the nation of Israel as time continues to pass. In verse 2, it says, Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night. He has a dream. It's, it's a spiritual dream. You know, some of you have experienced that, where you wake up and you know that is the Lord trying to say something to me. Sometimes we immediately know. You know, sometimes it's much later. Sometimes we never know. The Lord does speak this way to the heart. And notice this. He's having this dream that's spiritual, and God speaking to him said, Jacob, Jacob, <laughs> you want to hear yourself called Israel. And now he's hearing Heel catcher, heel catcher, right? And he said, here I am, right? Some of you studying the life of Samuel, remember that young prophet? And the voice, and he thinks it's Eli, and he goes to the priest, and the priest then eventually recognizes, oh, the Lord is speaking to you. Go back, and the next time he speaks, say, here I am. And he does, and that's the beginning of one of the most profound relationships between God and man in all of the Scripture. The shift from the judges over to the kings with the life of Samuel, Saul, and then David appear on the scene really rapidly. So here, he hears from the Lord the use of the old name. Here I am. So he, God, capital H on that pronoun, said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear. I pause right there. That was a big part of Jacob's life before he became Israel was being governed by fear. Fear compelled him everywhere he went. You know, fearful. God's not going to fulfill the promise that he gave that the younger would be master over the older, his brother Esau. So Jacob and his mother plot and scheme to manipulate Esau out of his inheritance. Out of fear, they take the matter into their own hands. As soon as his older brother Esau recognizes I've been tricked out of my inheritance and my birthright, he literally says to Jacob, as soon as dad's dead, I'm going to kill you. And he packs his junk and leaves town out of fear. And then fear of Uncle Laban and fear of what circumstance would arise. And finally, he has to face his fear. And come back home. And when he comes back home, and he's about to meet his brother Esau, the beginning of all of the fear that governed his life, that's where God changes his name to Israel. Here, 
He's being called out of their promised land, Canaan. He's being told to go to Egypt, which previously has been very problematic for both his father and his grandfather, as they didn't trust the Lord and went down to Egypt and bad things resulted and they eventually came back to the land. Now God is saying to Israel, don't be afraid, Jacob. Go down to Egypt as I'm telling you to. Right? Sometimes you can maybe find some application in that where you've grown to a certain level of maturity and suddenly God's launching you into a much bigger place. And you want to sort of fall back on all the old bad behaviors and conduct yourselves in ways that maybe even are just like they were before you knew the Lord. So here the Lord is saying, don't be like Jacob, Jacob. Don't function according to fear. You know, go down to Egypt. I will make you a great nation there. We'll talk about it in a minute. But because Israel would be segregated from the Egyptians, the nation doesn't intermingle with them. They live separately, physically, in the land, shunned by the Egyptians for 400 years. They become a massive nation of millions before it's all done. So, in verse 4, I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. That statement of putting your hand on your eyes is the idea that when you pass away, your son will be there to close your eyes for the last time. That's a very comforting thing to a man who thought all these years Joseph has been dead and he's about to go and be reunited with him. And the Lord is telling him, when you get there, you're going to be in his presence until your final days. This isn't some temporary thing. You can abandon that whole sorrow and fear that you've lived under for all these years. You're going to be reunited, and it will be for the remainder of your life. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his son, who went to Egypt. Now, from verse 8 all the way down to verse 25, we're going to skip right over. It's a huge list of names that uh, almost certainly, you know, next week you're not going to be like, yeah, and those names are deeply significant to me. So these are the descendants listed here. We're going to talk about them specifically and some of the things that are important about it, but you can labor through mispronouncing all of those names on your own. Verse 26, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. The sons of Joseph 
who were born to him in Egypt were two sons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Now, the sons of Judah, back in verse 12, the sons of Judah were of special note to us because this is the family line leading up to Jesus. And the line so far at this point is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, and Hezron. If you're interested, note takers, Luke chapter 3, verses 33 to 34, give you that entire breakdown of the lineage that comes from Abraham all the way to Jesus as the Messiah. It's quite interesting. In Acts chapter 7, I just want you to be aware of this, at verse 14, as Stephen is about to be stoned to death, he says there were 75 who went to Egypt. And some people are like, that's it, that's the discrepancy. The Bible's no good. Genesis says 70, and Stephen said 75. Clear contradiction, so throw the whole thing out. It's not a contradiction. While the Jews were in captivity, the language of Hebrew was mostly lost to them as a people. Greek became their language. And so there came a critical point with the nation of Israel where they sort of, as a population, rose up and said, we need the Bible, the Old Testament, translated into Greek. So 70 Hebrew scholars got together and rendered what is known as the Septuagint. The term Septuagint means 70, because 70 men worked on translating Hebrew into Greek. So Stephen was raised under the teachings of the Septuagint. And the Septuagint isn't wrong when it had recorded that there were 75 because they're taking into account the grandsons born to Joseph while he was in Egypt. So by the time this group arrives, they come, he has four, they have 66, together they have 70, and then they have grandsons born that are part of that original cluster equaling 75. So it's a difference, but it's not an error. So you don't have to go home and burn all your Bibles. Okay, good. All right, so <clears throat> more than 2 million people born over the 400 years, and we'll look at that a little more in just a moment. Verse 28, then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. And you'll remember that Joseph had previously told his brothers, when you arrive in the land, I want you to go straight to the region of Goshen. It's good pasture land, and they're going to immediately you know, start setting up for their livestock. It's not good pasture land at the moment. It's all you know, experiencing famine and drought. But he knows the land and knows when things turn around here, you know, we're going to want you and all of your flocks settled in that territory. So the plan is in place. It's interesting to me that Judah leads the way for his father. Judah, who becomes the tribe of Judah, who David is born through, who Jesus is eventually born through. Judah leads the way.
for his father. So maybe I'm reading too much into that. Verse 29, it says, So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. You would think so, right? I can't imagine thinking that your child was gone for all those years. And then suddenly you hear he's alive and now you're in his presence. That would be an overwhelming experience to say the least. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die. It's not so much the way the English seems to be saying it there. It's basically, now it's okay if I do die. I'm content. And he even says, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. There's a contentment in my heart that I've longed for for all these years. I can't imagine how dramatic an occasion this much of must have been. Genesis chapter 42, verse 36, when he's thinking that Joseph is dead, Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more in that he's in prison back in Egypt at that point. You want to take Benjamin, the youngest son. All these things are against me. Just to show the contrast between everything in life is against me to now my joy is so full I could die and be content in the process. There's a short distance between those two verses, chapter 42 and now we're in chapter 46, right? I think perhaps we've been like that, where we look at our circumstance and we think, I might as well just die. Life is so horrible. I don't want to live one more moment. And then everything turns around in a very short period of time, and you're filled with so much joy. You're like, I could die from joy right now over the same circumstances. We're very fickle people, are we not? Our emotions run rampant at times. We need to be governed by God, not our emotions. In verse 31, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds. I underline that because it gets significant through this passage. For their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servants. Notice that. He doesn't try to elevate himself or his family. Your servants. You need to be careful when you go to see Pharaoh. You refer to yourself this way. Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Um, the Egyptians, as we've talked about before, especially the people, all Egyptians um, in general, uh, shaved themselves completely bald. They had a, a particular difficulty with fleas and ticks and lice. So 
to keep themselves clean shaven caused it to be that it was easier for them to maintain the hygiene that they wanted to. So in their mind, anybody who was unshaven and bearded was just a filthy bum. That's how they looked at them. They wanted nothing to do with them. So here, they're going to arrive with that appearance, bearded and shepherd's hooks and looking like ruffians to the Egyptians. And the honor that's in place on Joseph, what he's telling his brothers is, we need to handle this in the right way so that we're not just rejected as a people and as a family in entirety all at once. There's going to be a prejudice, but we want to manage that so that it doesn't harm us. In chapter 47, in verse 1, it says, Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers. We don't have any idea why he took five or which five he took, and he presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land, because your servants have no pasture for their flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. They say a little bit more in this than what we see recorded previously, but we can only assume that they're rehearsing the lines that Joseph wanted them to. They've got their eyes set on Goshen. They want to be there. And so they're making the presentation that Joseph had specifically asked for. As we looked at, you know, in the, the previous two chapters, we watch his brothers go through a transition uh, verbally where when we read about them in their youth, they hated Joseph. And, you know, he'd have, you know, spiritual dreams and share it with him and you know, now they're referring to, oh, here comes the dreamer. You know, they've got all this animosity. And now, every time they're in the presence of Joseph, it's yes, sir, and no, sir. They're following his orders, like his first dream, where they're binding sheaves of grain together, and all of their sheaves bow down to his sheep. And, and now they're all bowing down because of grain. You know, because of the sheaves, now literally because of the grain that Egypt offers, they're bowing in his presence and obedience. Your servants are shepherd, and we want to dwell in the land of Goshen. Verse 5, Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of of Goshen, the wide fertile pastures when it's not in drought and famine and starvation. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock, right? They have livestock. They have, you know, they have beasts that they need to have cared for. And recognizing Joseph's abilities and capabilities and they've all been shepherds and all been herdsmen, he says, you know, your family line, you should be in charge of all my goods. Put, put your brothers in charge of what I own. Quite a remarkable thing that all of this blessing is coming because of Joseph saving Egypt from this famine. So then in verse 7, Joseph 
brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And notice this, Jacob blessed Pharaoh, right? I mean, if you know somebody called me and said, uh, the president has requested you at the White House, I'm not going to arrive there and act like, uh, you know, you must be really pleased that I've showed up here. You know. That's essentially what's going on here is you know, Jacob shows up and says, let me bless you. I'm the guy who was starving in Canaan and needed your grain, but I'm here to bless you. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7, says, Beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Jacob understands the relationship that he has with God and as much power as the man standing in front of him has, even over his own life, with the supply of grain, that man is inferior to his position in relationship with God. Verse 8, Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage, note that, my pilgrimage, are 130 years. His summary, you got to like this, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Right. You think 130 years? That's ridiculously long. You get older, not that I can you know, say that in the presence of certain people, but you, you begin to get older and you realize how fast it runs by, amen? It's astonishing. You know, I'm listening to Chuck Missler years ago, he gave the best explanation of that I've ever heard. You know, when you're one year old, a year is 100% of your life. When you're five and you're waiting for that fifth birthday to arrive, that one year you wait, that's one-fifth of your life. It's a big chunk of time. When you're 50, you're like, didn't I just turn 49? Because that one year is one-fiftieth of your life. If you're 130 have you ever had to like cut a pie up into like super small pieces? You didn't know you were having that many people over and you're like, well, here we go. You know, and this is your sliver. You know, if you've got to cut a pie into 130 pieces, like never mind. You don't know, see so you eat it. This is so small. The days of my life have been few and they've been evil. The greater summary of his experience is life stinks. And honestly, all you positive people, God bless you. This is a pretty horrible life. I'm not trying to find my fulfillment here. I've got my eyes set elsewhere. The presence of my Lord is where I'm looking. If you're trying to gain your happiness and your joy and your fulfillment out of this life, I, I'm not, well, okay, I'm not just cynical. You're going to be gravely disappointed. Short and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days and the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before him. Pharaoh accepts Jacob's blessing. 
right? It, it really doesn't matter how powerful you are. If you're standing in the presence of a man that's 130 years old, you kind of cower. <laughs> you know? That's some serious years and some serious wisdom and some serious experience. You know, if the if the 130-year-old dude starts telling you how to do stuff, you might want to listen. You know, if you're in your 20s and the 50-year-old person is telling you how to do things, you might want to, if you're 50 and you listen to somebody who's, oh, pay attention, there's a trick our enemy plays on us where our music compared to the previous generation separates us from them. Our culture, our clothing, our electronics, our entertainment, and we think of the previous generation as disconnected and uninformed, and, right? They don't even know how to get to settings in their cell phone, you know? The wisdom that we throw away. The wisdom that we throw away through pride. Just through pride. Right? Our generation's hip and cool and we got all the stuff. And those guys, I mean, listen to them. Pay attention. Pay, Pharaoh himself most powerful man in the world at this moment, richest man in the world in just a moment, is standing in the presence of Jacob and submits to the blessing that he is being given. So, Genesis chapter 41, verse 38, we had read, Pharaoh said to his servants, speaking of Joseph, can we find such a one as this a man in whom the Spirit is the Spirit of God. The pharaohs were known as deity. But when Joseph comes and interprets his dream, he says to all of his wise men and magicians, there's nobody amongst us that's like this guy. This guy has the Spirit of God in him. And he recognizes when this man's father shows up, this is a family of godly deity. There's a superior spirituality about this family that allows him to receive the blessing from Jacob. Verse 19, or excuse me, it's actually verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 47, Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses. I'll clarify that in a moment. As Pharaoh had commanded, and Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number of their families. Goshen is not referred to in ancient Egyptian writings, but the name it bore in later times was the district of Ramses. Goshen is a Hebrew term. So each time we've been hearing of Goshen, that's Hebrews recording this for us. So when they get to being there, they tell us the name that the uh, Egyptians used. Verse 13, now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So Joseph continues to deal with the famine and money is pouring into Egypt at this point. 
verse 15, so when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, and all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock and if, if the money is gone. Now, um, we know uh, from history and other biblical references that they don't at this point just start jacking the price up on everything. They're doing fair trade here, particularly because Joseph is in charge. He, he isn't you know, just escalating the price of a pound of grain because everybody needs it. So even when they start moving into this livestock trade, they're doing very equal balances in the trade for everyone to have an equitable return. So give your livestock. I'll give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses and the flocks, cattle, herds for the donkeys. Thus, he fed them with bread in exchange, and he's using this term in exchange. It's, it's like equal exchange is what it means for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We have no, we, uh, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our livestock, our herds and livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our lands? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them, so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh. And they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their lands. <coughs> that is a much more significant verse than we think by just reading it through quickly. These are the pagan priests of the Egyptians. So Pharaoh is still holding to the significance of the pagan belief systems. That is why we see a shift in the attitude of the Egyptians toward the Hebrew people and just a matter of verses here. Because they don't honor the God of the Hebrews, which has saved all of their lives. There's a bitterness that turns. Verse 23, Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your lands this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. You're going to plant. We're going to harvest. It shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. So we want to see 20% in return. Four-fifth shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food. So you make plans. You're not coming back to us for seed again. You need to take the seed that's provided, grow seed, and then replant in your harvest. 
for those of your household as food for your little ones. Verse 25, so they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt that day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only. He's repeatedly drawing our attention to that, which did not become Pharaoh's. So the power and wealth of Pharaoh are multiplied greatly at this point. You know, this 20% is a very reasonable tax. You know, in looking at this and reading a lot of commentaries and talking to people, there are a lot of people in our culture today that would be satisfied with a 20% tax. You know, a lot of us are like, 20% tax is ridiculous. There are a lot of others that are like, yeah, I'll take 20% tax on what I'm making. So this is not an imbalanced approach, having saved all of their lives and their lands in the process. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. And there they had possessions there and grew and multiplied, specifically it says, exceedingly. Dr. Henry Morris calculates the initial group of five, Jacob and his four wives, grew to a clan of about 100 to or so in 50 years. That's what we have recorded. The 100 included the 70 of Genesis 46, 27 that we just read about, plus a few wives of the sons not mentioned and grandchildren. That is a growth rate of just over 6% per year. At that rate, they would have easily reached millions of descendants by the time of the Exodus 430 years later. Sideline note, people will often ask, oh, well, here's you know, Adam and Eve, and you know, then we see Cain kill Abel, and then you know, Cain leaves and he marries a wife. Where did his wife come from? You know, as though you know, that's not possible. Adam and Eve lived to be nearly a thousand years old and had sons and daughters after Cain and Abel. So you've got Cain, that's one, sons, plural, that's at least going to be two, daughters, that's plural, at least going to be two. You're looking at five children there. If each of those five had four children of their own and lived to be about a thousand years, by the time Adam and Eve died, at a thousand years, there would have been more than 70,000 people on this planet. So it's not as though Cain had to marry a sister that was born from his mother. You're talking about several generations later. God didn't create a separate group of people that Cain went and found and married into them. It was from his own bloodline. So you can wrestle with that on your own later. Chapter 47, verse 28. Dr. Henry Morris, he just, he's a knucklehead, really. I mean, two PhDs in the study of water, so, you know, one wasn't enough. I don't know. Hydrology was his issue. You know, he has written countless books on creation. You might want to pick up his book, The Genesis Record. It's a 365-day devotional uh, regarding the entire record of Genesis that we're reading right now. So... He's got some brains packed in there. Verse 28 of chapter 47. I'm going to wrap this up quickly. Watch. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, 
please put your hand under my thigh. So I guess I got to pause right there. Because that's just one of those descriptions where you're like, what? It was meant to be that embarrassing and that memorable. You're not going to, right? I mean, if somebody says, hey, you remember that conversation we had where you gave me your car? You're like, I don't think so. You remember that conversation where we shook hands on it? Uh, I don't remember that. Remember that time you put your hand under my thigh and we came to this agreement? <laughs> yeah, how could I forget that? That's literally the intention here, right? You're not going to accidentally shake hands with a guy and make an agreement, right? You, you could redefine that later, you know? In passing in a crowd, shake a hand, you know? Quietly, he says, you want to give me your car? And you're like, what? You're like, you know, yeah, sure, well, okay, and you walk off. You could casually do something like that and insist an agreement upon somebody. So in this ancient world, this was a requirement when you're making this level of a pledge. You see it actually repeatedly in this family where when they make this level of vow, they place their hand under the other individual's thigh. Deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed and passed away. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Israel knew Egypt was not their home, right? He had referred to himself as a pilgrim in this life and in these circumstances. He belonged in the land promised to his descendants. He clearly believed and understood he was the inheritor of Abraham's covenant. We have a different land we're looking for. This land is not ours. We should not seek contentment here. Hebrews chapter 11 I'll leave you with this set of verses. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's our inheritance. That's what we're looking for. It, it, it's a tricky thing, right? We get our eyes in the right place, and then something pulls us toward the world. And we find a discontentment in our heart, and we say, what's going on? And it's when our vision returns to gazing forward to what the Lord has promised us, that the burden lifts and we experience the joy all over again. Fix your eyes on the promise of God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray together. If you uh, want the notes on Daniel 9, verse 25, if, if you ever want any of my notes, just for Firestarter or whatever, you can ask me. So. Father, I thank you very much for your great love. And I pray that you'd help us to fix, fix our eyes upon your promises. 
that our hearts and minds would be stayed upon what you're going to fulfill. As sure as you fulfill the order to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of your Son as Messiah, you will accomplish the promises that you've extended to us. Help us to be men and women that live by faith in those promises, the hopeful expectation of your glorious appearance. Accomplish your work in us. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.